0: Do you know about Acker Wines? It's America's oldest wine shop and the world's largest fine wine auction house. Their weekly web auction is all the rage right now with thousands of new bottles available every week with all types of great stuff ready for drinking with prices starting at $20. That's right, 20 bucks. With hundreds of selections for less than $100 every month, there are tons of wines to choose from. If you're looking for fun, new or aged bottles to try, each week brings a new assortment of the world's finest and rarest wines, often in try-em-out sizes. Also, there's no reason not to be buying at auction, especially when the finds are this good. In addition, the retail store is stocked with thousands of items to choose from, including lots of cutting-edge stuff. Go to Ackerwines.com to get in on the action and take your cellar and drinking habits to the next level. That's Ackerwines, A-C-K-E-R, wines.com. Use the promo code BWG25 to get $25 off any purchase of $100 or more. Retail only. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a Black Wine Guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, hey, everybody. What's up? It's your boy, MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is sommelier, restaurateur, and best-selling author, Victoria James. Victoria is the director of beverages and a partner at Michelin-starred Coat in New York City and, most recently, Miami. Uh, Coat, for the second year in a row, received a James Beard nomination for Outstanding Wine Program. Uh, she has worked in restaurants since she was the age of 13 and fell in love with wine and when she was 21 became certified as a sommelier. Uh, Victoria's name has appeared on many notable lists. The Forbes 30 under 30, Food & Wines 2018 Psalm of the Year, Zagat's 30 of 30 under 30 and The Wine Enthusiast 40 under 40, uh, Wine & Spirits Best New Sommelier. Whew. <laughs> Uh, she is the author of Drink Pink, a celebration of rose, which is published by HarperCollins and co-authored by her husband, Lyle Railsbeck, who has also appeared on the show. And she is the author of the best-selling book, Wine Girl, the obstacles, humiliations, and triumphs of America's youngest sommelier, also published by HarperCollins. Along with Coates general manager, Amy Zhou, and HR director, Cynthia Cheng, she Co-founded Wine Empowered, a nonprofit that aims to diversify the hospitality industry by offering tuition, not tuition, uh, <laughs> tuition-free wine classes to women and people of color. Welcome, Victoria. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: I think you, you got it. That's my life story. I think I can leave now.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, thanks. This is the fastest episode of the Black Wine Guy experience, which is so bad because she's so delightful. Um, so Victoria and I connected through, uh, Instagram. Um, you know, uh, she was following me, which I was honored that she was following me even before, <laughs> even before Lyle, her husband came on the show. And, and then I kind of was like, yo, can we get Victoria on the show? And they, you guys were super busy. Uh, you were, you were doing coat. You're down in Miami and you got, you know, you're a dynamic couple. So I'm um, so glad you're here and you made it. Um, Tell what's the wine? What's the wine we're drinking tonight? What you got me drinking on?
1: Yeah, so this is a Grüner Veltliner, not from Austria. It's actually from California, from Santa Rita Hills. Uh, the producer is Camines to Dreams, which means the path to our dreams in Catalan. It's an amazing uh, wife and wife couple uh, of Maria Taribo and Tara Gomez. So, I thought I would bring it because there are so few women winemakers, women winery owners, and first and foremost, it's a delicious wine.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I love – and you know, that's – th- I love the stories, right? So, that's like female couple making wine together out out in my – one of my favorite places in the world, Santa Barbara <laughs> County. Um, yeah. I mean, it's uh, very nice. Very nice nose and I'm going to start sipping a little bit, <clears throat> but um, – so let's hop into your book wine girl um because i mean fans you're writing i look on your instagram feed just just the what people post you know um <laughs> uh about the book like uh you know a lot of people i don't know how many people who are listening know your backstory um but uh for those who haven't read it um you did say your childhood was was not easy um there was alcoholism in the family, some mental illness, uh, just like everybody else's family. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then you started working, you know, you had to get a job. So, like, you know, uh, if you want to, just share a little bit about what it was like growing up. And you were raised by your father, right? Single single father.
1: More or less, yeah. I was separated from my mom when I was seven. And from there, I was raised by my dad and my stepmother. Oh, we have a big family as well, lots of siblings. <laughs> so I started working when I was 13 in this Greasy Spoon Diner um, in New Jersey.
0: Jersey, the home of the, the Greasy Spoon Diner.
1: <laughs> I know. It really is. It, I mean,
0: is. I literally, I think the first episode of Diners, he came to Jersey. I mean, we are the diner capital of America.
1: Yeah. Um And some fabulous diners there. So I was kind of always enamored with restaurants. We didn't have a lot of money growing up. Uh, My mom came from like this fancy aristocratic background. But, you know, my dad's background, you know, his, his mom was a cotton picker. And so they really came from nothing. And, you know, we never went to restaurants growing up at all. So... For me, even the concept of a greasy spoon diner seemed extremely glamorous. So, being able to work there when I was thirteen actually um, didn't sound so like terrible. It sounded very exciting.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I have some friends. I mean, I was fortunate um, that you know my dad worked for the post office, so which that was a good job in the seventies, you know. And so, I mean, we would go out like every now and then, you know. So, but I used to work with kids you know, uh, in, in the inner city and like a lot of them, they've just never been out to a restaurant. And like, that was like one of the things we do teach them how to eat out in a restaurant, you know, order tip. Um, I so you can
1: teach uh, some adults how to do that still. Um, <laughs> well, I,
0: <laughs> I know you're <laughs> not lying. <laughs> so, um, so we, what was that like? So just, was it like, just like just you walked in and you're like, oh, my God, like, 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 what was the uh, what was it that kind of connected you to uh, the restaurant industry hospitality at that age?
1: Well, for me, it was this whole realm I had no experience with. And this diner in particular was sort of under the railroad tracks, but it was the cool spot where everyone would hang out. And uh, I didn't really have a lot of friends growing up. It kind of circulated around, you know, who had the coolest new jeans. And of course, I never did. Um, and I was also a bookworm. So, you know, I just kind of wanted to be a part of the space where it was so social and it was this sort of, you know, restorative, um, really hospitable place. And so I walked into the diner and I wanted to be a part of the energy, but was too timid and, of course, too too poor to actually afford a sandwich there. So I was like, well, I, I think I want to work here instead.
0: Oh, wow. Um so tell me about, like, your first job. Like, I love hearing people's first job now. So I've read the book, so I know, but people don't know. Tell me about that first job.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think this is why Lyle and I connected so well as well. My husband, because his first job was at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I think it was a beekeeper or something like that. And, you know, mine was at this Greasy Spoon Diner, which was – not very glamorous. You know, there was rotting food. Um, everything was from Cisco. Uh, people were extremely overworked and underpaid. Uh, it was very grimy. Um, but, you know, I, I loved it. And it was sort of this introduction to this very adult world, which at 13 was uh, very exciting.
0: Yeah. It's like, um, would you say like restaurants, there is a sense of family when you work at a restaurant.
1: I think so. And not having that really at home or having a really uh, dysfunctional family at home, you know, you always kind of gravitate towards, you know, these missing parts of you and and restaurants. I found friends and the sense of family and people that were like me that wanted to work hard and wanted to be in this special place.
0: Yeah. So like, I like what you said there. So thirteen, like what drove you to work so hard? Like most thirteen year olds, like you said, they're like, they want some designer jeans, they <laughs> want to go to the mall with their girlfriends. Like 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 your work ethic is off the chain. Like what kind of drove that?
1: Well, at first, I'll be completely honest, it was it was just mercenary. I wanted money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't even about having cool jeans. I mean, I remember when I was in the sixth grade, every other kid got to go on a field trip and I couldn't because we couldn't afford like the $10 to send me on the field trip. And, you know, of course, the teacher was pissed because they had to come in that day and didn't have a day off and they were just sitting with me in the classroom. And, you know, I just wanted access to things that everyone else seemed to have access to. And so I thought, well, what better way to do that than to get a job?
0: Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's oh, – that's – Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, that's 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 it's powerful stuff. I mean, that's there's so much. Um, the book is really rich. It's called Wine Girl, but it's definitely about life. Um, so, where'd you go from after that first greasy spoon? What was your next uh, restaurant job?
1: So we moved to another town in New Jersey called um, in, which is near Edison, near Rutgers University. And, of course, I gravitated towards another diner. Uh, This one was not under the railroad tracks in New Jersey, uh, but it was on the highway. Um, So it was where, you know, truckers would stop off. It was open 24 hours, which in itself is exhilarating as a concept. (laughs) 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 Um, And so I would work the graveyard shift. I would work 4 p.m. to 2 a.m., sometimes 4 a.m. And then, you know, spend a few hours sleeping and and then go to school.
0: My wife's a social worker. That that's a CPS move. Yes. How are you working?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I looking back at it, you know, and like talking to our HR director now, Coat, I'm like, how did they allow me to do this? Like, the, it's just crazy. But this was also, you know, restaurants in the '90s and early aughts were just, I mean, very Bordanish. You know, there was it was no man's land. I mean, you could do whatever you wanted. <laughs>
0: that's crazy. That's like. I'm, again, I'm just gonna I'm just like who does that who who works what teenager works at and then go get some goes to school Like you still went to school too. Like, I, you know, I know kids who would work, but then they would just went and come to school like that's Wow <laughs> so, okay, so um, I, I Lost my thoughts. I was just, just picturing you so you're working at the 24-hour uh, diner right greasy spoon mm. um, and um. What – same thing, just waiting tables or did you have any like managerial responsibilities? Like what – like did you start?
1: Definitely not. I mean I was a complete mess at the time, (laughs) you know, Uh, probably because I was operating on like three hours of sleep a night and permanently smelled like French fries. (laughs) Uh, You know, I was just – I was just waiting tables and and making friends and I learned a lot of invaluable lessons from some of the older servers there and I think that's really when I got – a sense of how big the world is and what customer service really means I talk in the book about uh, the love cycle which is something I learned from you know this guy named Frankie who worked there who is this maybe 60 70 year old guy who'd been in the industry forever he had this like push broom mustache like almost no teeth left and this really like raspy raspy voice um and he showed me how to love guests even the ones that you know are the most difficult to love and and why that's so important
0: oh wow that and wait but, wait, wait, but greasy spoon diner he taught you like he, like he <laughs> loved on his customers
1: you know, I think I mentioned this in the book, and I don't know if it's exactly the verbiage I use, but I think sometimes, you know, the more honest the job, the more honest the people wow. and service really keeps one humble if you allow yourself to remain in that state of humility throughout service. And that's why I still work the floor coat, you know, every, you know, five days a week, if not six, because there's a purity to service, I think, and um yeah, even in a greasy spoon, you can learn these life lessons. <laughs>
0: uh, uh, well, uh, yeah, uh, lessons are everywhere. I love that. So, when was like your uh, when did you graduate from the the diner circuit <laughs> into you know uh, something uh, more akin to like the world you 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 you've been living in and that you are now an owner in.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think that that was when I went to college. So growing up in New Jersey, of course, I always pined for the big city across the river. And I knew I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I knew I wanted to be in New York City. So I got a scholarship to Fordham University, and started studying psychology, of course, needed to still pay for like, the other 50 grand that wasn't covered by the scholarship. And so I started bartending at a small spot on Restaurant Row, which is still there, called La Mm -hmm. And Restaurant Row is 46th Street um, in the theater district. So it was – I mean, it is. But at the time especially, it seemed very, very fancy to me. And I knew nothing about bartending, definitely nothing about wine or spirits, which became quickly apparent. And I realized I needed to learn so I found this dusty copy of Wine for Dummies behind the bar.
0: That's a favorite book of mine. <laughs>
1: it's a good one. Yeah. Um, it's a classic for a reason. And I thought, well, this is perfect. I'm a dummy and I need to know about wine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was pretty surprised actually because I love just absorbing uh, information and in books, but I mean, reading about wine is quite dry, but, you know, I finished the book in like a couple days mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I got than the Wine Bible. And then I started reading more region-specific books. And after about a semester, I realized I wasn't studying psychology. I was just reading wine books. (laughs) (laughs) So I deferred for a semester. Slash permanently dropped out of college <laughs> <laughs> to become a sommelier. And, you know, it's, I go into more detail in the book um, about what that process was like and, and how one becomes one at 21, and then goes on to work at a Michelin star restaurant and then to Michelin star and, and then, you know, become a wine director and and such. But uh, that was the slippery slope, MJ.
0: Oh my God. Dropped
1: out of Fordham
0: <laughs> uh, to become the youngest psalm. Uh, you were the youngest Psalm at the time, right? Are you still as like as as whenever
1: I mean I'm old now. I'm like yeah, thirty.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know you're so old. Um Yeah, so what was what was that like? Like what was that what was that process like? Um you you know, you went from wine to dummies to the youngest certified Psalm. Like I know. They want, these are why a wine part. People want wine stories. They want they want wine stories. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I mean it was certainly quite challenging, obviously, you know, especially then there were not young females in the business, and I was not very welcome but it's also studying for these exams exams are it's quite insular um, you're by yourself reading most of the time. I joined uh, a school and a tasting group to learn more about wine, and that was um, uh enlightening if not traumatic at times mm. <laughs> and you know there are there are a lot of bad people in the wine world, and uh, so it was certainly not without its challenges. And then I remember when I became a sommelier when I was 21, I had just taken the certified exam. It was also at the same time as sommelier uh, Oriel, which was at the time a Michelin-starred restaurant here in, right in Bryan Park. Um, and I remember I, I took the exam. I passed it. I was so excited and elated. And then, you know, when something really exciting happens to you, the first thing is, who am I going to tell, right? Mm-hmm. And I had, I had no one to tell because... <sighs> there was, I had no friends. I was just working 80 plus hours a week. I was studying. Um, I was part of this old boys club and, you know, or I wasn't a part of it. I wanted to be and and they didn't quite want me. So I remember walking around the city and trying to call my little sister and tell her, but you know, it was a really lonely, lonely time, I think.
0: Mm, mm. Wow. Um, that's powerful. Um, so I, read a review for Wine Girl. Actually my producer did. I actually read Wine Girl. Um oh, oh and
1: no, I don't read the reviews. <laughs>
0: uh, no, no, but it's it it talks about um uh you had um some gentlemen come in and order a bottle of white burgundy for lunch. And um, you know for for people out there like who don't understand who don't believe like, uh, tell, tell, tell that story about, cause I, I, I think I DM'd you. I was like, Oh my God, I just read that passage. I was like, did he really say that?
1: Yeah. So this was, uh, so this is the opening chapter of the book. So, um, you know, you don't even have to read the whole book to yeah, get <laughs> to the whole story. Um, if, if this is, a, it's listening. called a teaser. They're like, Oh,
0: they're going to want to dive in even more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I was – so I was 21 at Oriole, as mentioned, and I was working a Monday lunch shift, which is like the shift they give to the newbie, right? Um, Surprisingly, though, on this newbie shift, someone ordered a really expensive bottle of white burgundy. Um, And instantly I was like, oh, my goodness, my wine director is going to love me. I sold this bottle, which is like a $600 bottle of Chardonnay. It's so fancy. And so I excitedly presented to this guest, and it's, you know, a group of – of course, slick-haired men in the corner giving me their beady eyes. They approve the bottle. Um, I go to open it, and it's amazing. It's incredible. It was the f- one of the f- first times I'd ever had Grand Cru White Burgundy, but of course, as a sommelier, I knew if a wine was was corked or not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, present the bottle. They taste it. They say it's corked, and it's terrible. <laughs> and to take it back and you know, what do I know about wine because I'm this girl and I'm so young and I have perfume in my nose. And I just walk away from the table completely shaken. Uh, So I go to the manager and, you know, one of the captains and I'm sort of like, what do I do? Uh, And they're like, serve it. You know, he's just being an asshole. (laughs) Come on, like just, you know, strong arm him sort of thing. It's fine. We love it. Um, Our manager also had a huge penchant for white burgundy and he had probably drank bottles and cases of Domaine Ramonet, which was the producer. So not very helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm like, how am I going to strong arm this guy, the guys? Uh, So I think of another idea. And so I go up to the wine cellar. There's one bottle left of this Grand Cru uh, Chevrolet Montrachet from Domaine Ramonet. I grab it. I present it to the guest. And then instead of opening the second bottle, I actually give him the first bottle. And he loves it. And he says, it's great, and uh, thank you for opening this new bottle, because, you know, the first one was so terrible, and I don't know what I'm talking about, and he just, you know, he just reams me out in front of his guests. Of course, he doesn't know that I did the bait-and-switch, which I haven't done since, but worth at the time. And and then he goes on to not only offend me and every woman on the planet Earth, but (laughs) he essentially, I mean, they're just terrible humans, you know, then he... You know, it says something terrible, which actually, if you read the book, it's different than what I say in my audiobook uh-huh, okay. um, because I didn't feel comfortable saying it.
0: That's right. I know that, <laughs> um, I know why now <laughs>
1: um, but he says, and also what I say in my audiobook, he said, well, at least she's white yeah. And you know, he uses a racial slur that's different in the that I write in the book. Um and I think that when my editor first read this, they were like, there's no way that's true. <laughs> right. Mm. This was before. Black Lives Matter. This was before people were even having conversations about race, um, even really about misogyny <laughs> in the wine world. So it's it's hard to believe, um, but it happens every day in restaurants. Oh
0: yeah. Oh well. Yeah. I I, I kind of uh, know that. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, but I mean, but that what I think is so crazy, like it what's great for people who don't understand high end service is that you present the bottle and you go in the back and you open it and you bring it back to the table so that's how you're able to pull that maneuver off you know yeah. um, because uh, what would it, like what what do you, what, what, you, what what would you what would the restaurant have done if you had to open another bottle
1: So this – you know, they probably would have lost their shit. (laughs) Uh, It's a very expensive bottle. You can't –
0: Can't buy the glass that.
1: You can't buy the glass it. And also, you know, you can't return it to the vendor because there's no – there's no trace of TCA, right? That right. D- you can't prove that it's corked. So the vendor will say, "I'm not giving you credit for this," and you know, cost at the restaurant was highly monitored. Uh, we would shake martinis until they were wholly watered down. I mean, <laughs> it was just absurd. So I, of course, was so nervous. I wasn't getting support from the management, and I thought this was the only way to move forward.
0: Mm. Uh, well, you know, the wine was impeccable. He said so himself. <laughs> so, like,
1: yeah, and I think that this is something that. You know, oftentimes uh, women or people who are underestimated feel that they have to come up with these solutions on the spot. And oftentimes, uh, you know, they're made to feel like they're the smallest person in the room, but they have to make the decision for the bigger picture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wow. Um, So I also read a review that that described your story in Wine Girl as a love story and how dedication to one's craft can serve as a lifeline. How do you how do how do you feel when you read something like that? Do you, do you feel a lot of truth in that? Uh
1: I mean so it's funny when I came out with the book there were two different types of reviews or feedback. I think people loved either one. They loved the fact that it was This love story to hospitality, or two maybe if you were in the literary world, you were hoping that it would like have some Dickensian ending where I would like die of syphilis alone, (laughs) sort of thing. Um, That's the literary world. Um, So you know, I think some people thought like, oh, it's so saccharine at the end. She gets married in this, you know, castle, and hospitality saves her in the world, and um, it's a little. It's a little much, no. You know, <laughs> um, and maybe. But I think that it was really important for me when writing this book that it wasn't wasn't really a, about my story, even though I suppose obviously it is. Um, it's really about uh, the world of hospitality and anyone who feels marginalized in it, and to give them hope and purpose, and to show you know the real restorative power that hospitality can have.
0: Yeah. Wow. I also read somewhere. Um, it was someone uh, likened it to a uh, kitchen confidential of wine. I mean, that's good company, right? I mean, Tony, <laughs> like, how does that when like because it's you know when you when you like you're like on the world stage now. Like, how do you how does how do you? I love your humility, but like like when people write something about it, how does it make you feel?
1: Can I tell you a funny story? Yes, please. <laughs> okay, we
0: love funny stories.
1: I love it so. um I suppose maybe the reason they said that, or one of the reasons, is uh, the editor of the book, who's Daniel Halpern. And Daniel Halpern is Anthony Bourdain's editor, and he's sort of a legend within the wine and food world. And so when I was writing this book, you know, over the course of five years, I, you know, I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if I landed an Echo with Anthony Bourdain's editor? You know, big, big dreams, right? Um, so it just so happens when we first opened Coat, and I write about this in the book, uh, you know, Adam Platt comes in, who's the restaurant reviewer for New York Magazine, and an incredible gentleman. And he comes in with Daniel Holborn, who is Anthony Bourdain's editor. And of course, I'm super nervous, because not only are we going to get reviewed by New York Magazine, Coat is, has just opened, everything's writing on this, and he's coming in with, like, my dream editor. <laughs> no pressure. So I go over to the table and offer them some wine. And I don't think Daniel will mind me saying this, but Daniel looks at the list and goes, there's nothing I want to drink here. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> and it's like a gut punch. Like, oh, my God, my hero just looked at the wine list and said, like, no thanks, <laughs> pass. Um, and and he's looking at the buy the class list. And, uh, you know, we bottle everything in Magnum specifically for us. So when we first opened, especially we had no money. And so we had, like six wines by the glass I said well not to worry you know we have tons of other wines by the bottle I'm h- happy to open anything for you and that we can you know we can drink it together and he said fine you know let's see I opened this bottle of wine for him it's, uh, it was actually from the North Fork of Long Island it was Macari Vineyards mm. um, their Bordeaux blend and he loved it I was like, oh, my goodness, thank God, saved. Uh, and, you know, we kind of kept in touch. I dropped my card over email. He asked me, like, where he could buy the wine. And whenever he needed a reservation, I kind of, um, you know, helped him out there as, as best as I could. And years passed by. And so when I finished the book, I was like, oh, man, I wonder if I should send it to Daniel. But, you know, there's, the literary world is very, you know, you have to go through the proper channels, right? So I sent it to my agent. And I said, okay, here's the manuscript. It's done. Would you mind, in addition to sending it to other publishers, to send it to Daniel? And she was like, okay, well, slow down. Like, slow <laughs> <roll>. <laughs> like I'll send it to him, but, you know, don't get your hopes up. And this was like a Friday afternoon. Uh, I was like, okay, of course. Yeah, I mean, he published Anthony Bourdain and like Patti Smith. Like, of course. And uh, so I go through my weekend and she said, you know, I don't know if you know this about the process, but when you submit your manuscript, it usually, it takes a few months before you hear back from publishers. Monday morning, I get a call and my agent said that Daniel loves the book (laughs) and he wants to preempt it, which means it doesn't even go to auction, which is another big deal. It doesn't even see other publishers. He wants to take it off right away. And I'm just completely floored. I'm like, wow, my dream editor wants to buy this book. And he read it in one weekend. Holy shit. (laughs) So, I mean, I think also that goes to to talk about the power of hospitality and the fact that, you know, years earlier, I had just served him a bottle of wine that he had liked and those relationships. And, you know, it, I suppose, in some ways helped me get on his, his his radar, and he's just the most incredible editor to work with. And you know, for me, it was never about uh, the money or the prestige. It was about being able to tell my story in the right way that would have the most impact. Mm-hmm. And I only trusted Daniel with that because he did such a great job with Anthony. And so we worked together on the book, and he made some neat changes. And when it came out, I think it was probably, you know, the most proud I've, I've ever felt. And I think I have Daniel definitely to thank for that. And he definitely crafted it in a very Bourdain-esque way, to answer your question, <laughs> in a long about long way.
0: <laughs> no, that's totally, totally, totally makes sense. Um, uh, why Macari Bordeaux blend, of no. all wines? I'm interested now.
1: Well, I think that, you know there are a lot of local wines here mm-hmm. in new york yeah. and i think that we should support especially the good ones as well um, great female winemaker and the wine's delicious and it's at a really affordable price point for guests and i kind of wanted it to be a little tongue in cheek because daniel was being um you know <laughs> uh he he was you know sort of challenging me in a way mm mm-hmm. And uh, I actually had been challenged before in this way by Simon Kim, who is the proprietor of Coke Korean Steakhouse and an amazing gentleman. When he first hired me to be his wine director at Pura, his first restaurant, which was this little Michelin-starred jewel box in the West Village, I had just been hired. I had been there for a week. And he gives me a test. He says that he has a friend in town. He's only going to be in town for one day, and he had heard that last weekend I had visited Macari on the North Fork of Long Island, and he wants me to get a bottle for them. Oh, and by the way, he's leaving for his flight in two hours. <laughs> so of course I am like, oh my gosh, this is like my test as a, a new wine director. I have to find this bottle of Macari, and so I called, you know, my rep, um, vendors, different wine shops, the Macaris, and I made it happen. So it was on his on his flight back to Korea. But um, for me, this was – it's always kind of my go-to wine if you want to show someone something that's unexpected from a local vintner.
0: So, <clears throat> I am a little bit older than you. And uh, when I was living in New York, before I moved to California, like the Long Island wines were they, – they, they weren't that good.
1: <laughs> yeah. And
0: they, I mean, so, like – you said it was unexpected. What? So what? What's their style? Like, is it right bank? It's a left bank? Like, what? What's kind of like their style? What's their the signature style of this wine? Because, because you know, you know, uh, most people, I don't know. You know, like, I'm, I'm gonna go something. I just, I'm just so intrigued by that pull. So now, now I'm gonna have to find the wine. But tell me about it, so I can go find yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well,
1: I mean, I think you're right, MJ. I think a lot of the wines are still not great on Long Island. Unfortunately, they've succumbed to the easy golden handcuffs of tourism. I know that's
0: people. <laughs> I tell people, I'm like, I know. You know, I, like people like, oh, you know, I got friends who are like, oh, we we have wine in Missouri. I'm like, you have wineries in Missouri, bro. <laughs> I said, I know it's romantic. You you, you you've got vines, but 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 like that. I agree. That's what it was like. So so so. But Macari, it's because this actually came up in a, another episode yesterday. I was sitting mm. down with uh, Marquita Levy, and she oh, she Marquita. was big. She's Big up in Macari. <laughs> so I, I was like, I, I need to ask some more questions. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Mercari's great. Pomonok, Lens. I mean, there's a lot of great producers out there. And I think that if you can support local, it's it's really wonderful. And, you know, the the good guys should certainly be rewarded and, and their standouts for sure. So, I mean, you know, the climate's not too dissimilar from Bordeaux in a lot of ways. There's that maritime influence. The soil types as well. Merlot does really well there. I mean, I know Merlot has had a hard time the last few years but um it can be quite exceptional and i've had like i think 1995 Pominoch merlot from the north fork and it's saying like old bordeaux so wow. you know there's definitely some cool stuff that can be done there and i hope more people will start uh doing so
0: yeah so as a as a california wine lover lover but like are they pick are people picking riper out there now is is something to do with climate change or just the vines are more mature uh
1: Climate change is changing everything, <laughs> every <laughs> wine region, everywhere. And I think that, you know, you know, uh, you know in Domaine Tampier they're planting a Syrtico, you know, which is a Greek variety in mm-hmm. the south of France and Provence. And I think winemakers in general all over the world are starting to plant different varieties, uh, harvesting certain ways. Um, you know, it's 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 not uh, it's it's no joke for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um. No, it's, it's serious. Um, so going back to, uh, before I took us on the detour, uh, down to North Fork, um, you were mentioning, uh, we told the story about, uh, the service and the, uh, issues of, uh, sexual harassment, misogyny, racism, discrimination in, uh, in, in the industry. Um, what gives you hope right now?
1: So, uh, MJ, when, when the book came out, I, you know, it came out during the pandemic, actually the week that everything shut down here in New York. And uh, I was sort of nervous about the reaction, you know, how would people respond to me essentially calling out blatant, uh, misogyny, harassment, racism. I mean, rapists, I mean, like crazy shit goes down in this book. Um, and I wondered would anyone would anyone believe me? Um, would it matter? Would it make a difference? But then something started to happen that was that gave me hope. And I think over the course of a few months, I started to receive messages from women and men all over the world that had read the story and saw themselves in the pages, mm-hmm. and so much so that it culminated in myself and a group of other very brave women coming forward in the New York Times to talk about the harassment that happened specifically at the court of master sommeliers. And that came out in October. So I think that there's a lot that's changing. And I think that people are starting to realize, um, you know, that these terrible things have happened to women and people of color, and that we need to change it. And so I think these conversations – the fact that they're even happening now, whereas a year ago they weren't, gives me hope.
0: Very nice. Um, I'm going to pause. We need to take a quick break and we'll come back. And uh, we're going to get into, uh, we're going to del- delve deeper into your activism, I- I'm going to call it. Right, so we'll be right back. If you're a fan of the show, you know that there would be no black wine guy experience without Acker Wines. America's oldest wine shop is now the world's destination for fine and rare wine. That's why I want you to go over to their website and check them out. Whether you're seeking the world's finest and rarest bottles or just something for everyday drinking, Acker Wines is the place to go to expand your palate and enhance your personal wine experience. Go to AckerWines.com. That's A-C-K-E-R Wines.com. Use the promo code BWG25 to get $25 off any purchase of $100 or more. Retail only. Okay, we're back. So, yeah, the New York Times article was huge. Um, Tell me how Wine Empowered came into uh, existence, how it came into being.
1: Yeah, so Wine Empowered is a 501c3 nonprofit I co-founded along with Amy and Cynthia, we actually started this nonprofit in 2018, um, way before it was uh, hip or cool to to talk about, you know, offering free wine education to women and persons of color. And like, who cares? Why is this important? Yeah, a
0: friend of mine, uh, Instagram friend, but he said something. And I, I think it happened after. He's like, watch out for black lives marketing, right? <laughs> oh, no. so, so, I mean, the fact that you like said this was... You guys got to pick up the book. You read the book. I mean, it's, she's very passionate and, and and very raw. But like the fact that you started before, you know, is says a lot about you and who you are. So,
1: well, you know, it's interesting. So we we came together. We all work at the same restaurant. Amy, Cynthia, and I. And. You know, I had this idea actually while I was getting my hair cut, which I, I hate getting my hair cut because you can't do anything. You just sit there and um, for hours. And for me, who always likes to be on emails, that's torture. So anyway, I f- thought of this idea because we were offering um, already tuition-free wine classes at Cote to anyone who wanted to learn. And I thought that if someone got a little bit of wine education – you know, maybe they would become a sommelier one day or, or they would sell more table side. Um, but something happened that I didn't expect. And what happened was it really empowered these individuals. You know, it gave them this strength and this confidence. And I saw bussers become servers, become bartenders, become managers. And I realized that when you believe in someone and you give them this little bit of education, it can change their lives. And so – I couldn't do it alone. And so I talked to Cynthia and Amy and you know they were down to help as well. We went through the crazy process of getting a 501c3, which I don't know if you're familiar with the nonprofit world, but it's insane. <laughs> Um, essentially, the government doesn't want you to not pay taxes. So, <laughs> trying to be like, "No, we're going to start this nonprofit where like people are drinking wine. It's going to be great." <laughs> was a very hard.
0: That's sell. a hard sell. <laughs> yeah. That's a tough sell.
1: It was a hard sell, um, but we finally got it. You know, our uh, we found lawyers that were willing to do it pro bono because we had done some wine tastings with them, and they were really lovely. I had met them on the first book tour with Lyle, actually. So in 2018, we became incorporated as a 501c3. And we started the planning process for these classes in 2019. But in 2019, people still didn't think this was necessary. They were like, oh, no, we have plenty of women. Like, look, you're a woman in wine. Like, that's great. Like, I know. I have one black friend. Like, it's (laughs) great. (laughs) You know? And so I actually decided to write a piece that came out in Eater, New York, where I did the legwork and found the statistics. So I went to every Michelin-starred restaurant or called them or texted them and found out who their wine buyer was here in New York City. And at the time, pre-pandemic, there were over 80 Michelin-starred restaurants. Well, you can guess what the percentage of female wine buyers were and, of course, people of color. Um, Like, it's terrible. Uh, Zero were black. And I think it was like 15% were women. And so I think that you can't really hide when you are presented with the facts. And a wine buyer position is even a step above being a sommelier. It's the people that really hold the power and influence the market. You got the money. (laughs) You have the money.
0: The money, (laughs) yeah.
1: You're voting with your dollars. And these are the people that decide what wines get on list. Do female winemakers get on the list? Do people of color get on the list? And also, who are hired for these wine programs? Um, and it was a really hard article for a lot of people. There were a lot of fragile white male egos that were shattered. (laughs) And a lot of these guys, I would get, uh, DMS and on Twitter and Instagram saying, no, but I'm not racist. Like, you know, like we have like someone who, who is like Mexican here and they're like the dishwasher, dude, no,
0: (laughs) digging the hole deeper, (laughs)
1: seriously. And so I think people get really uncomfortable when you have these conversations and I think that's actually okay. And after that, a few months later, we launched Wine Empowered and people finally realized, oh, this is why we need this. Because there are no people that look like me or you, MJ, in these positions of power.
0: I know. I know. Because I quit. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. I mean, I'm sure you have so
1: many stories. Uh, You should write a book.
0: (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I should write a book, but I'm not. I'm like, I'm just sitting here amazed. Like, she's like, I, I can't sit still. I got to be on emails. I got to write these books. Got to order these wines.
1: <laughs> it's a, it's a curse, really.
0: Uh, yeah, a, a good more power to you. Um, wow, I love it. The perseverance, though, um, and something you said earlier. Just this, there's, there's a thread of hospitality in your life. You like, you said, you know. um, How you served uh, your editor uh, this bottle of wine, and you're like, that's a little piece of hospitality. How you took care of these attorneys who then came and did pro bono work, right? So, like, um, show title is going in my head. (laughs) Ideas are going. Um, So let's switch gears a little bit um, because I, you know, I do love, uh, I love, um, you know, you being so open, but. You know, I know, let's, we can lighten it up for you guys a little bit here. Um, so you recently wrote a book, um, about Rosé called Drink Pink with illustrations by your Renaissance man, uh, of (laughs) a husband, Lyle Railsback. Um, how did that book come about? Are you guys at home drinking some rosé and said, let's write a book? I mean, how did it come about?
1: Oh, I'm surprised Lyle hasn't told you this story. It's a good one.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> so actually, this happened um, – I was already writing Wine Girl and I, I pitched this you know, idea – actually, I'll, I'll, I'll tell, tell start at the beginning, actually. So I was working at Pure as a wine director, mm-hmm. uh, Simon Kim's first restaurant, and I was doing a little bit of writing on the side. So I – wanted to kind of get my name out there. I would write articles for free, anyone who wanted um, anything. And so I I co-wrote this piece for New York Magazine about like 21 rosés you have to drink for summer or something like that. Uh, Anyway, a literary agent came across the piece and was like, this is really great. I love your voice. Uh, No one has written a book yet on rosé and you're a sommelier. Do you want to write a book on rosé? And I think anyone else would have been like, oh, my gosh, this is like a book deal. This is great. (laughs) But for me at the time, you know, I was still early 20s. And uh, as I talk about in the book, given the nickname The Wine Girl, um, so I thought like, you know, the Rosé girl would be a demotion maybe. (laughs) And I didn't want to be pigeonholed. And uh, yes, no one had written a book on Rosé, but I didn't know if I should be the one to do so and who would care. So I went home. I talked to my then boyfriend, now husband, Lyle, and I said, "Yeah, this literary agent, you know, pitched this idea to me, and I just don't really know if I wanna, I wanna do it, you know." And I actually countered back to her. I said, uh, "Hey, Allison, and, and she's amazing." I said, uh, "What you know? Book on Rose? What about a book about like the obstacles, humiliations, and triumphs of America's youngest millionaire?" <laughs> and it's filled with misogyny and everything. And she was like, "No, no one's, She was like, "No, it's going honor <laughs> <laughs> This is pre Me Too, you know. This is yeah, like, uh, you know, yeah. like." So she was like, mm, "Yeah, I don't know. What about this Rose book?" <laughs> I was like, "Okay, that's kind of different." So I went home. I talked to Lyle. And he said, no, like, you should write a book on rosé. Like, yes, you are a woman in wine, but you're also a great sommelier. And you can write about rosé from a place of real care and, you know, talk and highlight the growers that you love. So you should do it. So I went back convinced to my literary agent and I said, okay, I'll write it. And she said, great. I want it to be really fun, though. I want it to have beautiful illustrations. Do you know anyone that you work with that is a good illustrator? And I was like, oh, my boyfriend, I guess, <laughs> went to art school. <laughs>
0: I mean, who the fuck is this guy, Lyle Railsbeck?
1: <laughs> and she was like, oh, yeah, your boyfriend. Like, I don't know. <laughs> that sounds like a nightmare. Um, no, I was like, no, it's going to be great. So I, I made him do like a few spot illustrations just to show her. And she's like, these are actually quite charming, yeah. He's on board. So um, we I submitted a book proposal, um, and HarperCollins bought it right away. And so we had, I think, uh, a really quick deadline because we sold it in the fall, and they want it to be out for, of course... Rosé season, baby. (laughs) It's rosé season. Rosé all day. Indeed. In (laughs) 2017. So we had, I think, a month and a half to write it. And so for me... I compiled all of the research and had it done in like two weeks. <laughs> and um, Lyle's the opposite. You know, I'm very type A and this is why we work well together. He's like, we have a month and a half, like so much time. <laughs> so he had this time to do 100 illustrations, which is a lot. was a lot. But he was like, no, it's going to be fine. And like days passed by, weeks, and I was getting super anxious. <laughs> I think he had done like 10, maybe a dozen illustrations. Um and this is early in the relationship, you know, so I don't know if you've ever worked on a high-pressure project with a loved one. Nah. You know, it's it's not for everyone. <laughs> uh, no,
0: no. It, it's, it, they, they often say, don't, don't work with your spouse, you know? <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a very common uh, uh, divorce accelerator. <laughs> Accelerate.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I learned in retrospect, I probably should have given him a fake deadline, but... Um, No, he actually crushes it. So he works, I learned, better under pressure. Whereas I work better if I know I have like three weeks left. He finished them all in like the last week and they were better than the ones he had done earlier in the month. Um, We have this joke that there's this one illustration we both hate that made it in there. (laughs) Um, And it's like really big and we're all like, whenever we see it, we just cringe. And it was one of the first ones he had done. So uh, I learned a valuable lesson that, you know, to trust him. And so the book came out and we organized this great book tour and it ended up turning into an engagement tour because he proposed to me on the door. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was really lovely to be able to do this project together and to speak some soul into the the then vapid world of Rosé.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about the vapid world of Rosé because I, I read a piece online. You wrote, it appeared in Vice. Uh <laughs> about the the dark history of Rose <laughs> what what was that about?
1: Yeah, I mean I think you know people think Rose is all puppies and flowers, which it can be, but uh, it's a wine like nothing else. and it, first and foremost, it's about stories, right? And so th- there are some dark stories that can be told around this beverage. Um, you know, it was the first wine ever before white and rose white and uh, red actually. Uh, and i tell this a uh, few different stories for example about Schulter, which comes from the south of austria um over this oh, made from this grape called rabiat pearl which is called the rabid pearl <laughs> and um essentially you know people were wondering why all of these Animals would drink, or rather, why they would eat these grapes and they would just go absolutely rabid. And it was because, of course, they were fermenting. They're
0: fermenting, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, And it was wine and such. And that was sort of the lightest tale I told, but uh, it gets darker from there.
0: Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm going to have to, when this is over, she's very, (laughs) very good. Yeah, I have to, here's a moment. But yeah, and then also the, um, I, I like just the piece about. You know, a lot of rosé was just mix a little red with some white wine, like you know,
1: rosé. <laughs> yeah, it's rosé.
0: So you have going for the color. Um, so you're on the you're on this book tour, and it turns into a proposal uh, tour. Uh, how did he propose?
1: Yeah. So Lyle is such a Renaissance man, as you really mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> he can he can do all things. Uh, so we were. It was the first stop on the west leg, uh, west coast leg, rather, of our book tour. We're in Orcas Island off the coast of Washington, and we were doing this event that was supposed to be an homage to Lulu Pay Road of Domaine Tampier in Bandol in Provence. So it was a bouillabaisse dinner, uh, which is this incredible, of course, fish stew, as you know, and it's delicious with rosé. So um, it was at uh, this cafe called Rose's, And um, we were – so many guests had already signed up. They got a copy of the book. You know, we had some uh, famous chefs there, and I was super nervous. I was getting ready for the event. And uh, beforehand, Lyle was like, well, let's just, you know, go out for a little walk to (laughs) de-stress beforehand. And, of course, then he gets down on one knee on this beautiful setting in Orcas Island, and it's just us, which is really lovely. And he proposes, and, um, of course, I say yes. (laughs) 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 But um, the – you know the probably in retrospect not the best idea to do before a book tour event, because you're so excited and you're at a loss for words. Um, you're just so giddy. I was like the I bombed that presentation, and, like <laughs> bombed. That Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, I think you know, like oh my gosh, there was. Uh, I, I won't say who, but there's this amazing uh chef. You know, she was asking me questions about the book and she has this very famous restaurant in San Francisco and I was just a complete like bimbo. She was like, So why did you write this book on Rose? I was like, I don't know, I love wine. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it was just I had I had nothing to say. So um yeah, bombed that event. <laughs> she was like See that ring?
0: that's fine. Um so what are some of your favorite roses? What do you what do you what do you drink at home? Because I know you guys are big, big uh fans of uh you know cuz his work with Kermit just like you know wines that really go with food like what do you, what, what rosés do you like to quaff
1: yeah uh well domaine tampier i think is the og right mm-hmm. um but there's also we're fortunate there's so many great rosés now being made all over the world um and so uh like bermejo makes a great one on the canary islands it's just like smoky and you know, it's just can go with everything even meats. Um, I love also like darker colored roses, which I know is not very hip, but, um, I love them, especially Cheriswold Brutzes, um, from like Defermo or Presidium. Of course, Valentini is like, you know, from the auction circuit world. It's, uh, also another OG. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: so you know, I think that just like red and white, the world of rose is so expansive, and you know, I just love trying them all.
0: Yeah. Do you have um, <clears throat> um, uh, you name so many different ones. Do you have a a preference? Like, are you like, do you like it to be like Rhone grapes, or are you just like, you know, just if the shit is good, <laughs> fill up my glass and I'm gonna have this salad soise and you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that you kind of captured it there with talking about the food. For me, it's always about what am I eating first, and oftentimes I'll like honor that. What grows together goes together, um, and. Lyle is like very intense about this. When I first started dating him, <laughs> he would um he'd be like, oh, Are you coming home from work? I'll make you dinner. And I thought, like, I don't know, like mac and cheese or like <laughs> something heated up in the microwave. And I would come home and it'd be like this four-course dinner, um, you know, where it was um he was like, We're gonna have Ligurian cuisine tonight, and it's gonna be torta de verdure <laughs> with three different types of brosese de dolce agua. And these are Tajuska olives from Punta Crena in Liguria. <laughs> and just very like very um, grows together goes together and honoring you know these centuries of tradition these yeah. regional cuisines so um every time and he's obviously the chef in the household <laughs> um every time we make anything you know we we it's usually a historical traditional dish mm-hmm. and when i say we make it he makes it and i help chop the vegetables <laughs> and um you know then we try to research like what are they drinking in this place at this time
0: mm-hmm. that's so cool that's so cool um you know, in the book, you talk about um, you know falling in love with him, and, and when you know, just you just mentioned how he cooked these four course meals. Um, what was it like to? Because you had a lot of uh, you know dealt with a lot of uh, adversity with men. Well, how was it? You know, what was it like to find someone that you know that you could trust? And 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 it, I mean, it looks like he just loves you and just is, is just, you know, what's that like to have that, that, to, that safety it Like, like, like he, he also is probably like a ninja, like, you know what I mean? Like, like, not like, like to know your, 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 like your back is gotten.
1: <laughs> yeah, he is uh, definitely a ninja. um No, I, I love him so much. And, but when I first met him, I, as you mentioned, had faced a lot of adversity with men and did not trust him, uh, or any man for that example. Um, you know, I'm a multiple-time rape survivor, and, like, men every day are creepy and annoying in, in the restaurant still um, that I'm a co-owner in, you know? And so it's it's hard to let your guard down. And when I first met him, actually, he was selling wine for Kermit Lynch. <laughs> and so I thought he was just trying to sell me wine. <laughs> and I was like, he seems nice, but he's just trying to sell me on his wine. Um, and then he invited me over for dinner at his house, and i was dating someone else at the time and i was like you know no i mean i'm not that kind of girl like i'm i'm seeing someone and he's like no this is strictly business i meant like a dinner party other people will be there too um and then it turns out of course like a week before the dinner party uh i had broken up with this other person and so I wrote Lyle's like, I'm sorry, this is going to mess up your dinner party arrangement. I'm actually going to come by myself. And he was like, that's perfect. No one else has been invited. It's just <laughs> going to be you and me for dinner for two. Um, and, you know, there's something about the way Lyle does something that if any other guy had said that, I would have been like, all right, well, creeper. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not right. going to your apartment in like bed in the middle of oh. nowhere. But. <laughs> um, But he's just so genuine and so honest and he's so good. There's not a bad bone in his body. I mean, he's just so genuine. So I let my guard down and I'm very happy I did. It was, you know, he cooked an amazing four course dinner. (laughs) And uh, more than that, even like, you know, I thought, okay, this guy is going to be like most men in wine, such a douche and going to like try and impress me with fancy bottles. And, he also works for Kermit Lynch, so he's probably going to pull out, like, Coastery and Raveneau and mm-hmm. Allemand and be like, let me tell you about the time. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I've done all these fancy things. And, you know, it's just going to be so dull and boring. You know, but it's the opposite. So he actually pulled out wines that I had never heard of that were, like, $12 a bottle, and he talked about why he loved them and why they were great. And we stayed up all night reading poetry and, you know, painting and just talking and... I think that when you meet the right person and you're able to let them in, it can be a really special thing.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I did love, I love the love story of you and Lyle in the book and, and, and how, what your, uh, spoiler, but what, mm-hmm. what I won't say it, but what your sister said about him, like how your family embraced him. Like I was yeah. like, I was like, wow, this is like I'm getting goosebumps. I'm like, wow,
1: this is <laughs> so special book. Yeah. No, I think, uh, um, Eric Asimov from the Times was, he was texting me when he was finishing the book and he was like, oh my, thank God there was a happy ending. (laughs) Like, oh my gosh, for a while, I was just trudging through being like, okay, it's getting worse and worse. Holy moly. (laughs) Like, thank God there's a love story at the end. Um, And yeah, thank God I met Lyle. I don't know where I would be today without him.
0: Well, speaking of Eric, um, you were on a wine panel of Rosé Champagne with him. What Mm -hmm. was, so... Was that fun? I mean, because he was on a pod. He's a fun guy. But like, yeah. that, that's work. Like, what's it like? You, like, do you ever say to yourself, you're just a girl from Jersey and then like you're you're just <laughs> like sitting with all these. Well, you now you're a best-selling author. But like all these award winners. I mean, wh- what was it like to be on a panel with Eric? Uh,
1: it's awesome. Eric is amazing. <laughs> and I still pinch myself when I have these incredible opportunities. Um when you go to those tastings, you go into the fancy New York Times building and you go all the way up to this, you know, nth floor overlooking the gorgeous city. <laughs> and you're there with these pristine glasses all filled, you know, pre-filled with wine. And and it's also with Florence Fabricon, who I love as well. And there's there's a lunch provided, which I always love a free lunch. <laughs> um, and it's just, it's so lovely. And, and Eric and Florence both have such a great way of thinking about wine and and drinking and it's really refreshing to (laughs) to hear how they think about wine and and how they taste because it's something that has stood the test of time and Mm -hmm. there's so many trends that go in and out of fashion and i think that they're just some of the best people in the world
0: yeah yeah so (laughs) let's uh let's talk about coat (laughs) how that how that opportunity happened that you like you are a partner
1: that's uh, crazy right <laughs> <laughs> no i think so I, you know i met simon kim at his first restaurant piora and his dream was you know he's a korean guy and from his dream was always to open up his korean steakhouse mm. and you know again before all this focus on asian americans People did not respect him as a Korean restaurateur. I mean, it was him in a room of French and Italian dudes, right? Always. And no one thought you could make a Michelin-starred Korean restaurant, let alone, you know, an elevated version of, like, let's say, Korean barbecue, you know? And so it was so important to him to make a New York fat cat steakhouse with a Michelin-starred wine program. And he invited me, Chef David, Chef David. Tom Brown, Amy, Wesley, um, SK to be his partners in this. And, uh, I wasn't even 30 at the time (laughs) I was, you know, 27 years old and given this opportunity to be a partner at a restaurant group. And he's just the most generous man. Uh, I mean, but I think when he asked, I was like, I, are you serious? (laughs) Are you sure that's a good idea? (laughs) Um, but no, it's, it's just been an incredible journey and it's, it's humbling every day.
0: Well, tell me about putting together the wine list there because it, it is a it is a steakhouse. It, it's a it's a steakhouse disguised as a Korean restaurant, and a Korean restaurant disguised as a steakhouse. Um, but you know, New York. You think steaks. You think you think Silver Oak Opus One. You think you think all the big. So, how how is your like? How did you approach this? Uh, a wine list of 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 you of pair so much with beef.
1: Yes, beef is king at yeah Cote. yeah yeah for sure. So uh, I think that you know Simon and I wanted to take an, a non traditional approach to the wine list. We wanted to have the classics, the blue chips, of course. We want people to come in and feel comfortable, but we wanted to also sing to like a lot of you know the marginalized regions and people that don't get to see those classic New York City wine lists. And I tell a funny story in the book about when the New York Times restaurant reviewer comes in, Pete Wells, and he opens the wine list and he orders a bottle of wine that like we don't have. We just sold the last bottle, oh. <laughs> which is so rough. <laughs> um, and he's looking through the list and, you know, I have other stories about him in the book and. You know, I think he's actually uh, quite good at his job, and it's a hard job. And um, you know, I was so nervous. I was like, "Oh my gosh, what's he going to think about our wine list? He is going to rip it apart because it is so different." And actually, the opposite. You know, he's saying its praises in a review, which he really does for wine lists. He barely will even mention the wine program. So the fact that he did and, and had nice things to say about it was was really incredible. And then from there. You know, as soon as one trendsetter says it, everyone follows suit. Um, So it sort of gave my program credence, which, you know, for better, for worse, is important. I think as a young woman, no one takes you seriously until you get that backing from one of those OGs. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, and also you mentioned this earlier, you bottle everything in magnums. Yeah. How did you work that out?
1: So again, this was, um, you know, Simon and I, we get together and we always have these crazy ideas. (laughs) And this is one of those crazy ideas. And um, it's it's why I love him as well. As a restaurateur, I've worked historically for people that, you know, I love coming up with these crazy ideas. And they're always like, (laughs) no. (laughs) Uh, But Simon's the opposite. I mean, sometimes, you know, he's actually too supportive where he's like, great, do it. And then I do it and it's like a disaster. <laughs> but um, so we came up with this idea of like, hey, wine tastes better in magnums. It's a fact, right? There's less oxidation. It stays fresher for longer. Why aren't more people pouring wines by the glass out of magnums? You were seeing a little bit of it. I mean, Mike Madrigal was probably the most famous example at Bar Balud, He would open a special magnum once a week or so and, you know, serve it, usually a rare bottling. But no one else was really doing it. Joe Campanelli did a little bit in Brooklyn. And so I investigated further. Well, there's a reason no one does it. It's really hard. (laughs) Um, First of all, quantity-wise, it doesn't exist. So I thought, no problem. I'll just go to the wineries directly and ask them to bottle it, Um, which also turned out to be a whole thing. But I think the more challenging things are, the more I wanted to do them. And it's still to this day, four years later, not without its challenges. I think we finally now found our rhythm and we have lots of growers that are always willing to bottle things for us specifically in Magnum for Coat. So it's sort of our way of telling the guests we care about them and we love them and that our By the Glass program is literally one of the best in the city. Because even if you try these wines elsewhere, they'll taste better at Coat because they're from Magnums.
0: So I want to say – yeah, you're not, you know, you're doing all switcheroo, it's just pale punch, uh, pouring a bunch of barefoot and yellowtail because <laughs> obviously no you know why it tastes better in Magnums. But um, the the producers, how did you get produce? So, because, you know, there's ways, there's system. New Jersey plays a three-tiered system. So, how do you get, like, do, Are you? do you guys have an import vein? Like, how are you getting these... D- Direct, because like when you'd have to have the magnum, then you have to go through distributor, you know, and and the distributor like I'll just sell them to anybody. Like how how did you? Because this is this is you know for wine, this is fascinating stuff. Like
1: yeah, I think you know the three tier system can be very confusing, and for new wine buyers, I learned a lot just from dating Lyle and seeing what he dealt with on his side, and I realized there's actually. A lot of room for negotiation and special projects that a lot of wine buyers don't take mm. advantage of um, with their importers and distributors because they just don't know and they don't know that they can really sort of push the limits um so I, you know, I kind of made a wish list of what I would want, and I discussed it with these different distributors and importers, and they talked to the wineries, you know, 90% of them said, pass. But, you know, we only needed that, needed that 10% to begin. And once we, once the growers realized, hey, they're paying their bills, and now, oh, it's a Michelin-starred restaurant.
0: Yeah, now everybody's like, 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 oh, we bought some for Victoria.
1: Yeah, now now everything's different. But at the beginning, it was it was very rough.
0: So how did you uh how did you guys make it through uh last year uh at code
1: Oof. yeah that this was a, the hardest year ever um it was I mean, we could talk about this just for a whole hour by itself. Uh, It was incredibly challenging. At Cote, we were unique in that we were one of the only restaurants in all of New York City that stayed open the entire time. um, The entire time. And Simon, going back to how generous he is, you know, he kept the line level employees. um, He continued to pay them out of his own pocket for a month, Mm. you know, even though they were technically furloughed. Um, And then management team, he kept all of us on. And so that we could have a paycheck, you know, and we hustled for that. It was myself and the other partners working delivery, which is not, uh, which is very stressful. Um, But we closed the restaurant for indoor dining. And then that week started delivery service. We started nationwide shipping. We started then doing outdoor dining, then eventually into indoor dining. And I think that because we were so resilient the whole time that it really gave us a leg up Um, now when everyone's reopening well we've already been doing this for six months Mm -hmm. uh, and it just made the team even stronger but it wasn't without its challenges i mean some crazy crazy stuff happened
0: (laughs) (laughs) um and speaking of crazy so how do you open a rest how do you begin opening a restaurant inside of a pandemic so you decode miami so like
1: (laughs) i know it's uh it's It's insane. (laughs) So I think that, you know, Co-Miami was planned pre-pandemic even. And there was this opportunity when the pandemic really hit that Simon could have gotten out of the project. And he was like, should he, you know, everyone was closing. No one was thinking about opening. But he pushed through and he thought, no, this is going to be a good idea. I trust the team. I trust this project. So we moved forward with opening it, um, and we opened up in a pandemic, which is crazy, and it was a huge success. So I think that all of us, you know, Simon's crazy ideas are usually great ideas.
0: What's that apple ad had about the crazy ones?
1: <laughs> yeah. The misfits? Yeah. I mean, here's to them.
0: <laughs> all right. Totally. Um, so what... Uh, what's going on with reopening like i mean like you said you've been open like you you said you know we've been doing this for six months what what are you seeing like how are your patrons your 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 guests feeling to come back in and see you and get their wine from magnums what 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 was (laughs) what was what was what was was like that that first service back like you know like
1: yeah i mean truly was quite joyful. I think that during the pandemic, where there were so many hard times, I mean, we would come to work and pass by, you know, those frozen body trucks where there were like Dead bodies, and we were delivering food, and then we would get it from both sides. You know, people would say, "Why? Why are you open? It's like irresponsible for you to be open. Well, what's the alternative? Like, no one's helping us." And and then you know, we, or we would send food to someone, and, and it wasn't perfect, and they would want a refund, and 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 you know, it, it, it just it's it was such a challenge financially, emotionally. It was a toll. All of us worked seven days a week. You know, I mean, it was exhausting. And there was almost no light at the end of the tunnel at times. Like, I mean, it was really dark, like very dark. (laughs) And uh, but when we were able to welcome those first guests back, it was just the most joyful thing. I mean, you take for granted service in general and being able to serve someone and you forget that people think, oh, when I go out to dinner, I have a great time and it's restorative. But you forget as the service person also The benefit you receive by serving others and how that helps heal you and helps give you, um, you know, helps you find yourself and gives you a sense of purpose.
0: Mm. Wow. I think Muhammad Ali once said um, service is uh, the rent you pay to be on earth. uh, (laughs) You know? Um, So with all this stuff going on, uh, books and book tours and Living the New York, Miami life. Um, what, what excites you about wine and hospitality right now?
1: I think that New York especially, uh, you know, had a very hard year, but we're coming back. And now more so than ever before, it feels like the roaring 20s. <laughs> You know, people are excited to live again, excited to hug each other, to share these bottles of wine and these special moments. And it's just really a joy to be able to see that, but also more so than ever before, to be able to provide that place, not just for our guests, but for our employees. They've had a really hard year as well. A lot of them financially didn't have stability, stability. Family members, they lost friends, loved ones, and to be able to provide this safe place for them, I think, is probably the most rewarding. Mm-hmm.
0: So, we, um, we've been talking about food, wine, life, um, and your love of it all. What wine? Is there a wine? Is there a wine that is just symbolic of your life with your husband, Lyle?
1: The first wine we ever drank together, I often think of, and we also served at our wedding as well. Out of Magnums? Um, of course. <laughs> so it was, it was on, on our first date. You know, again, like I said, I thought he was going to surprise me with these fancy wines. But he pulls out a bottle of Domaine de la Tourvier from Collioure, which is like where the Pyrenees mountains fall into the Mediterranean Sea in the south of France, the small little fishing village. Um, no one's ever really heard of it. Even in wine, people haven't really heard of Col d'Or. So it's a simple table red and it's delicious. Um, and it was, you know, we drank a magnum on our first date, which <laughs> also.
0: What is that? What grape is that?
1: So, I mean, they make a few different wines, mm. um, but it's usually like the classic Languedoc blend or okay. Roussillon blend of like Grenache-based gotcha. okay. and Carignan mm. and such. Um, and then, you know, we that was our first trip we took together was to there as well. And then we got married, you know, we had the, the winemakers come and, and they had their wine. And so it's just for me, it feels so full circle. And it's why I love Lyle is that this appreciation for... The simple things, like there can be just as much joy in a twenty dollar bottle as there can be in a two thousand dollar bottle, uh, sometimes more. And that's the beauty of wine. I think the wine of the world of wine is is so expansive, and there's so much to learn. And for someone like myself and Lyle, who are always very curious, um, it's like this. You know, it's this just. It can be this wonderful place.
0: Wow. I think that's a good place to end the conversation. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Victoria, thank you so much for coming. I, you. I, you know, you have a busy schedule. You have a busy life. But I really appreciate you coming, sit down, uh, getting to ask you some questions, learn more about you. Um, Lyle's invited me up to the Sherman place, so just so you yes. know. So <laughs> you might be stuck with me. Um, <laughs> but tell people uh, where they can find you, uh, how they can be a part of the things you're up to and what you're doing.
1: Sure. Uh you can follow me on Instagram at Victoria triple underscore James or on Twitter at Get Your Grape On.
0: Get Your Grape On. <laughs> and uh do you have any uh social media accounts for um uh, Wine Empowered?
1: Of course. It's at Wine Empowered on uh Instagram.
0: Awesome, awesome. Oh my god. Victoria James, thank you so much. Uh and you guys, uh I hope you um like had much uh, when you listen. To this, I hope you really get the uh, the heart of this woman, uh, and and all the wonderful things she's doing, and her passion for service, for hospitality. Uh, so my 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 peoples, until the next time. Cheers mm-hmm. to the Mavericks, uh, the philosophers and deep thinkers, uh, which you and Lyle definitely fall in a category. And of course, to all you wine drinkers, it's MJ. And until next time, peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.